my friends who listen to Future Primitive. We have a very interesting subject this week as well. I am speaking with Dr. Edward Bruce Bynum. He is a clinical psychologist and former director of the Behavioral Medicine Program at the University of Massachusetts health services. The author of several books, including Dark Light Consciousness, he is currently in private practice at the Brain Analysis and Neurodevelopment Center in Hadley, Massachusetts. Welcome, Bruce. Well, uh, hearty welcome to you, too. I'm glad that uh, we have a chance to talk. Good. So maybe you would begin by telling us what your intention is with this book that I'm holding in my hands called The Dream Life of Families, The Psycho-Spiritual Connection. Well, my intention uh, was to uh, relate, to connect to uh, everyday people like you and me about something that's really intimate and and, and wide-ranging to all of us, and that is our family life. You know, uh, 98% of people walking around on the planet have some form of family relationships, be it good, be it bad, be it, as most of the cases, kind of conflicted, but always very, very central to who we are and how we think about ourselves, whether we're close to our families or we're distant or uh, some mix. Some sense of family is very important to all of us. The other is something that's equally universal, and that is our dream life. All human beings, all human beings dream, whether we remember or not. So our dream life is deep, and it has an evolutionary base, and so does our family life. And it just so happens that both of those deep, evolutionary, real, day-to-day and night-to-night currents flow together into a common stream, and that is the dream life we have in our families, because we dream thousands and thousands and thousands of dreams, and uh, roughly 20% of our dreams, roughly 20% of our dreams, in some way or another, are connected to members in our family, whether it's a direct dream about them, or a symbolic dream about them, or reliving an episode in the family, or uh, a past episode in the family, but 20% on average has to do with our family relationships. And that, that makes sense. I mean, we grew up, the vast majority of people in some form, in some constellation, involved with our family life. And that went on for sometimes decades. And in point of fact, some people live in families in some form or another uh, all their lives. So family is, is really primordial. It's, it's fundamental. It's how we come into the world, and those are the people who uh, escort us out of this life. We're born into families, and we die very often huddled within our own families. So the sharing of dreams between family members is quite common. It is quite common. One of the things I did in, in Dream Life Families is I tried to break down in different sections the kind of dreams that involve our family members. And some of them are uh, health dreams that involve our family members. Uh, our own physical health is often connected to the health of other members in our families. Uh, different forms of creativity that happen in dreams that do affect our families. And, and also those major, major, major events that happen in family life, such as uh, when a new person is born, pregnancy, the different trimesters. And actually, as it turns out, the different trimesters in the, in, the, in the cycle of pregnancy stimulate different kinds of dreams in both the, the uh, 
right? I always thought that was an interesting experience. And also, on the other end of it, sometimes when someone has a very complicated situation involving uh, substance abuse, uh, alcohol or uh, some other form where it's complicated matters in the family, very often the family reacts to that in classical certain kinds of styles. And those show up in our dreams as well as in our family unconscious, our family dynamics. So that's what I try to do in, fa- in the dream life of families and just sort of like outline that in a very matter-of-fact way. Mm-hmm. Lots of examples of that, how that occurs, how pregnancy influences dreams, how our physical health influences the kind of dreams that we have, and even some sessions on unusual dreams in families where families actually share the dreams and share the same imagery and um, other intimate correspondences. And that falls into the area of, of uh, uh, ESP or precognition. But those kind of phenomena do occur, even though we don't have a, a clear scientific explanation for them. We do, can, we do recognize the pattern, and it happens mostly in families. It happens mostly in families. Wow. So all those different kinds of, of, of uh, uh, what's called psi phenomena, uh, extrasensory perception, mm-hmm. crisis telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition, all of those are most often recognized occurring in the family constellation. So would you say that um, dreaming is part of what we call intuition? Like we say, we say, I'm going to think about it, and then we say, oh, I'm going to trust my intuition. Well, the, the dreaming and intuition are uh, very related, but they're not, the, they're not the same phenomenon. I mean, a dreaming event uh, occurs uh, on a pretty regular basis for most of us. If you get uh, six hours of sleep at night, when you first fall asleep, you are sort of like unconscious unconscious for about mm, 90 minutes or so. And then you, you, your, your brain waves begin to pick up speed again and you come back up to the waking state, but you don't quite wake up. Wow. And just in that lightest state of sleep, that very lightest state of sleep, you have your first dream experience. And it's usually only a few minutes, four, six, eight minutes. And then you go back, so to speak, down into sleep again for another 90 minutes or so, and then you wake up almost, almost, and you have a longer dream experience. And this time it's usually 15, 20 minutes or so. Then you sort of go back down into sleep, but not quite as deep. And then another 90 minutes or so, and you have a much longer dream sequence. So contrary to the popular thought and opinion and, in, and thought about this, dreaming actually occurs in the lightest stage of sleep at night when our brain waves are uh, moving a little faster than they are than when we're in deep sleep without dreaming, and all kinds of phenomena happen in that dreaming state that we remember oftentimes. From, a, a dream is sort of like a little movie that's, that's written by you, <laughs> like a movie that you, that's written, yeah. directed by you, but, but you're not consciously doing it, you're sort of unconsciously doing it. And in that way, intuition sort of flows into that a little bit. So, yes, dreaming and intuition are, are related to each other, but they're not exactly the same thing. Why do our, um, our brain, our minds, you, you tell me, edit daily events in dreams in the way that, the, that, that it does? Well, it, 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 it's very fascinating how that occurs, and we needed to do that. I mean, uh, some, some of us have very literal dreams, you know. Our dream is not that different than when we're kind of wide awake. It's sort of matter of fact, and it's sort of like we're telling a regular story, and and uh, it makes total sense. And My dreams up. are very literal, very literal. Yeah. And then some of us have very intense, deep, vivid, symbolic dreams where there's no way that what's going on in that dream would happen in the waking state, but but when we're dreaming, it's reality, and we don't question it. We can be dreaming, and uh, the next thing we know, in the, uh, while we're dreaming, somebody uh, comes up in a long uh, limousine and gets out and, and hands us a, a, a basket of roses, and we take the roses, and then we, we drive to the airport. <laughs> the next thing we know, we're the pilot flying the plane 
and then the plane begins to crash <laughs> like it's going to fall into the ocean. Uh-huh. And we barely get away from it, jump into a lifeboat, and swim towards shore. And then we get on shore, and we meet people who are having a party. Now, at the time that all of that is happening, we take it for granted that this is, this is what's this going is, on. Yeah. We don't really question it. It's only when we finally awaken that we question, that, oh, that was a dream. That wasn't what was really going on. But emotionally at the time, that was what was going on. And that is the case for most of us unless, unless we actually become conscious, self-aware when we're dreaming. And that's what's called a lucid, lucid dream, dreaming. when we're aware that we're dreaming. And then it's a very different dynamics then. Please tell us about that. I mean, I have a lot of experiences in that way where I'm, I'm very conscious of being the observer. Yes, and that's, that's being uh, self-aware. That's being uh, uh, aware that you are dreaming. And uh, it is possible at that point to then direct the dream into a different direction. You can have uh, some, uh, you can uh, have the dream uh, uh, help you deal with a nightmare, let's say, you know, or some people uh, train themselves to use their conscious dreaming, the lucid dreaming, for a spiritual experience where they will talk to a, a, a great uh, ancestor or they will talk to a, um, a great teacher or they will uh, help themselves working on a particular uh, creative project, either in science or the arts. Mm-hmm. These are all possible when you become lucid, uh, aware that you're dreaming. The ancient Tibetans, and the, including the modern Tibetans too, use that, and they have they developed a highly uh, uh, creative form of uh, dreaming, and you become lucid in the dream, and in the dream state, you learn how to meditate, and that's a profound experience. So, you know, when we talk about uh, future primitive, some of our so-called primitive ancestors were very, very far advanced spiritually than we are today. So, before we go into the Egyptians, let's uh, 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 talk to us about dreams reflecting across generations. Yes, sometimes, uh, you know, most of our dreams happen to be about about us and our immediate family that's living now, or people who, are, uh, who may have just recently uh, crossed over. And so that's sort of like the present era, the present generation. And that's where the vast majority of dreams uh, occur for most people. However, uh, sometimes dreams can be carried from generation to generation to generation. It's almost like they have a life of their own. And like uh, a classic uh, example of that would be uh, the story of, uh, of people who share the same aspiration in their family for generation and generation after generation. And they may be an immigrant family who's hoping to come to the United States, and so therefore the, the idea is that, you know, we're going we're to get the United States, we're going to create this or that, and we're going to be uh, free to do this or that. And so that is part of the family's legacy. And it may, the first major dream may have been by a grandmother or a grandfather two or three generations ago. Their dream was to come to the United States mm-hmm. and create a business or um, uh, become involved in um, some humanitarian project or become involved in the community in some way, teaching or whatever it might be. And so for generations, that has inspired the family. And a family may have started the business three generations ago, and they keep that business going. And since it's a central part of the family, everybody dreams about it in one way or another. Mm -hmm. So that's how a dream can be passed from generation to generation. The actual mechanics, not mechanics, but the actual content of the dream. And then there are those situations that are more public, but they involve sort of dreamlike qualities. Like for generations people who are, uh, uh, have different religious traditions right. may celebrate those religious traditions every year, and as a result, that basic idea gets carried on for generation after generation, literally sometimes in their dreams. Right. Like in the, the Jewish Seder, there is a phrase that says, next year we're going to be in Jerusalem. Well, most of the time they're not coming in Jerusalem, but the idea is that they're going to eventually do that. Another one 
is uh, someone says that they have an aspiration for their uh, their country or, or their people, and it's been going on for generations and generations. The most eloquent example of that is that that speech by Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King on "I Have a Dream." Mm-hmm. He literally talks about a dream uniting communities across generations, and so there are a lot of examples of like that. Or Alcoholics uh, Anonymous. You talk about uh, adult children of alcoholics and root yes, chakra. Uh, yes. Well, in that situation, I say in a situation with adult children of alcoholics, say a parent has a, uh, an unfortunate uh, a substance abuse issue. Well, everybody has to sort of deal with the issue. And there are different patterns that people develop. Some people become enablers of that person, uh, in other words, making the situation worse. Mm-hmm. Some people try to adapt to it by becoming the, the you know, family clown and always trying to distract people with humor to get away from the, the crisis. Other people become uh, addicted themselves. I mean, there are different ways that people have. Others become uh, very uh, closed off and walled off. I mean, there are different ways that we as human beings have of trying to cope with an unpleasant situation. And so I outlined in one of the chapters of the book on the Dream Life of Families, one on adult children of alcoholics, ACOA, the different family styles and individual personality styles that develop as a result of trying to just humanly cope with a very difficult situation. And those coping mechanisms from a psychological, psychiatric point of view, show up as defense mechanisms that definitely show up in the dream because, well, the dream, you know, is is largely a a product of the unconscious mind. And so dreams are largely unconscious. And so both your dreams being largely the product of the unconscious and your defense is a product of the unconscious, they flow into each other and it shows up very clearly in the dream life of families. And that's just one of the ways. You have a you have a sentence in there that I uh, it's towards the end that I really like that um, I quote you dreams can be a loving discipline from the past to the future a future primitive discipline right would yes. you would you tell us what you mean by that well if you uh, what I meant by that is that if you decide you make a conscious decision that you are going to study your dreams the way you would study any other important aspect of your life. And you begin to write down your dreams, you begin to remember your dreams, you begin to discuss your dreams, you begin to, you know, uh, analyze your dreams, you'll find that they're not all random at all. Not at all. But certain themes, certain patterns repeat themselves. And those patterns and themes are usually... For most people, five or or seven major themes, major stories, major narratives. And those are the core issues of our lives. Those are the core issues of our lives. And usually, in terms of our family, the same people tend to show up in our dreams. The same people tend to show up in our dreams. And they're the ones that we're uh, most connected with, either in in a positive way, negative way or mixed way, but it has the most intensity associated with it. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's how we're built as human beings. It's just how we're built as human beings. And pregnancy, as you were mentioning before, I mean, uh, my, uh, my mother's Polish and, and Jewish and living in Europe, and I was born in 1946, and for about 15 or 20 years, I had recurrent dreams about war and uh, about uh, the Gestapo, although I have not lived that. Yes, well, you you picked up unconsciously on your mother's terror. She lived through, you know, the Nazi Holocaust in Europe. And fortunately, she survived. But she carried those traumas with her, and those traumas were transported, transferred to you in the in utero, in the womb. And so for years, decades after, you're picking up those traumatic images that she had stored in her brain and her body and her blood cells. You take them out. I know people that, you know, two generations back, 
they survived the Holocaust, but they still are carrying out some of those memories. They, it still affects sometimes the way they think about food, they, uh, a sense of being suspicious, a, a sense that it's never quite safe, that you could get knockings on the door uh, in the middle of the night. And then again, it doesn't help if, while it may not be happening to you, it's happening to somebody else. Like right now, for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of, of people here in the United States who are living, right. have been living peaceful, law-abiding lives, they can get a knock in the middle of the night from ICE, and the federal authorities are here to take you away, to separate you from your family. Right. So... It may not be happening directly to you, but you may hear about it, you may know about somebody else, and you'll get what's called re-traumatized by that. In the dream. In the dream, and also in the waking state, but certainly in the dream, because you think, well, it's not so long ago that that used to be me, or that used to be somebody that I knew, somebody I loved, somebody who was, was you know, in the middle of the night was taken away to one of the, right. one of the camps and was never heard from again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that, that's, not, that's not a fantasy. That, that, that is happening at this very moment to somebody in this country right now. Well, yeah, exactly, exactly. Like, um, if I have a big trauma in the daytime, uh, continuing trauma, I, I immediately start uh, dreaming, that, uh, uh, dreaming that somebody's looking for me to kill me. What do you suggest in a practical way? You're a psychologist. Do you suggest that um, we very early on look at our look at our dreams and uh, consider the trauma that we experience in our dreams, not what we call nightmares, as important for our psychic psychological health? as any story that's happening during the daytime? I certainly do. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's simply because I'm a, a clinical psychologist. I think that anyone who has something happening to them all the time needs to look at it and see. I mean, a dream is like a, 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 dream is like a letter you've written to yourself. A dream is like a letter or a movie about yourself wow. produced by you. And so it's about your life. And as I said, uh, anyone listening to this, if you decided, and this is not, you know, going uh, hardcore uh, psychoanalytic. No, we're just talking about, you know, being mindful of your dreams, writing them down. I give each dream a, uh, you know, a, a, story, a title. You would, and, and don't edit. Don't edit. Don't be concerned about whether it's right or wrong or anything else. It just is. You would find after several months of writing these down in, in a notebook that you and you look at, you begin to notice that certain kind of things repeat themselves, certain kind of stories and narratives. Well, those are the things on the deepest, deepest, deepest level you're concerned about. It may be your relationships with certain people. It may be spiritual concerns that you have, financial concerns you have, health concerns you have, but it'll be very specific. And no one else can write that book. That is a book about you that you've written. That's like you going to a museum and seeing three or four large rooms retrospective of some famous artist. And you look at all the work the artist has done. And you get one painting and you look at another painting. The paintings may be very different from each other. But if you looked at several rooms of this artist's painting, you would begin to notice, oh, I see that idea coming back again and again and again. Well, this is how it is with your dreams. Every night you are writing yourself a, a letter. You are producing a movie about your innermost life. It's neither right nor wrong. It just is who you are. And so I would just be very careful. 
curious about that myself. Wow. Because part of our work here in the world is to figure out who we are, why we're here, where we're going, what we believe in. So today, you could say every night I, I paint a picture of who yeah. I am. Yes, you do. You paint a very dynamic picture of who you are. And some of the times, it sounds like yours are very pleasant, for the most part, graceful pastels, and that is yours. Or someone else will produce a very turbulent, Turner-like, dynamic dreams, and other people produce very unusual Picasso right. juxtaposition of images, dreams. I mean, it'll, each person is, is an artist when they dream. Beautiful, yeah. Each person is an artist when they dream. Each person is a pioneer. Each person is a visionary. Fabulous. Each person is a, is a Fellini. Each person is a Fellini. Yeah. And each film is a minor masterpiece. Oh, I really, really, really like that because I, I am so excited about my dream life. Although my dreams are very practical and they speak to me, they speak to me very clearly. They don't have uh, many mythological themes. Uh, well, that happens to be your particular way, and that is your way. But it, it, our dreams, you know, are are occurring. Uh, certainly periodically during the night. And also, if you watch very closely, if you watch very closely, yes. sometimes in the middle of the day, you're daydreaming. You're kind of daydreaming. And your mind is just sort of drifting around there. You know, it's not particularly logical. It's just sort of drifting around and sort of tying things together, much as you do at night, except that it's not as intense and not as vivid. And... Uh, during the day, it has to compete with the other stream of uh, information uh, coming in, and so you filter stuff out. But at nighttime, you don't filter anything out. You put it all in your dream. You put it all in the dream. You don't do that much editing. Now, there is editing going on, because some things will not come through you in your dream except very symbolically, because it's too intense. Uh -huh. uh, mind can't handle it. But you don't have to worry about that because your your unconscious mind uh, filters things out. Sorts you have something it out. called you have something called primary process, which is the basic images themselves. Then you have something called secondary elaboration, and that's where the editor of the book that you wrote looks at the book and says, "Well, we're going to have to take this out, and we're going to have to add this a little bit, and we're going to have to make this kind of more symbolic because that's too." Uh, director, and then we're going to have to tie these two facts together that, you know, didn't actually occur together, but they make better reading. So uh, all those kind of things go together, and you end up with a movie, a dream. One is called symbolization. We turn images into symbols of things. One is called condensation, where you take different parts of, of experiences you've had recent and far, far back, and you bring them together. Um, and then uh, the last one is distortion, where you twist things out of proportion sometimes. You know? Yeah. You can be worried. If you're worried about, say, financially going under, well, you might dream about that directly, about sitting in a banker's office and the banker telling you you're not going to be able to make it. But you're more likely to dream that you're flying or you're, or you're in a boat and the boat is sinking underneath Oh, the boat. or I dreamed that I lost my wallet and my passport. Exactly. That's it. Yeah. That's it. And that, that, that's that insecurity, anxiety dream. Yes. Let me ask you, you, in a very good interview you gave, you spoke about that your, you said that that your intention, that your interest was in uh, in marrying science and technology with spirituality and religion. So in view of that, uh, tell us why you chose to write about, to study the dream life of families. Well, one is that it, was, it, it seemed to me anyway an obvious one, uh, because dreams are something that all of us do, and families are something that 
95% of us have some connection to. And those two are deep, deep structure events in our lives that inform us emotionally, physically, they inform our, our consciousness, they affect our physical and emotional health, all of those kinds of things. And there are also some, some clinical and medical things about dreams that I wanted to, to bring in. Those are the more technological parts of, of the dream. And also the spiritual. You can learn how to help, you, help your dreams prepare you for the spiritual uh, expansion, the spiritual adventures, spiritual experiences that all of us will have. Oh, speak you know, more about born. that, please. Speak more about that before well, you go when on. We, when we, uh, <clears throat> if we, if you learn about your dreams enough, you learn about what your personality, deep core issues are, and you, you, you learn how to self, you learn how to accept yourself, not so much as a critical thing, but just this is the human being that I am, mm-hmm. such that when you depart this life, you are aware of all these bizarre events coming into your consciousness, but you recognize what they are and who you are. Let me say it a different way. Let me say it a different mm-hmm. way. Before we are born, before we, when we are in our mother's womb, particularly the latter months in, in our mother's womb, we're actually conscious. We're actually conscious. You don't get physically born and all of a sudden you're conscious. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. You're, you're, you're conscious for some time before you're physically born. And then, even after we, and that's a medical, uh, clinical fact. There's no theory. That's a clinical fact. You are conscious before you are born for some time. And there's also a medical, clinical fact that for some period after you are physically dead, i.e. your brain is flatlined, there's no activity, you are still conscious. You are still conscious. So you see, consciousness occurs before you are physically born, and consciousness continues, obviously, while you're in the uh, embodied state, waking, dreaming, and deep sleep, sometimes beyond. And then when you are clinically dead for some time, you're still having conscious experiences, but they're more dreamlike. So some people, certainly the, the ancient Egyptians and the ancient Tibetan yogis, yes, talk extensively about training our minds such that when we are in the post-mortem state, you can recognize the great light. You know, every tradition, every great tradition, the Christian tradition, the ancient Egyptian tradition, the uh, uh, Hindu uh, tradition, the uh, great uh, traditions of South America all talk about meeting the great light when we pass out of this life. If you're of a Christian intuition, that figure appears as, as Christ. That's what our mind will identify it as a great luminous figure. If you are Tibetan, you recognize it as the Adi Buddha. Mm-hmm. If you are a uh, 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 Hindu, uh, you might see it as Lord Krishna. If you are Native American, you might see it as the Great Spirit. That's the name our, our minds put on that. But deeper down, it, it is a some. It is a luminous portal that radically transcends our physical and psychological sense of who and what we are. They talk about it extensively in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the Bardo Throdol. Mm-hmm. They talk about it and describe it in extensive detail in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, the Papyrus of Ani, also translated as the coming forth by day or the coming forth in light. The great traditions of Christianity, particularly during the medieval period, talked about this a great deal. So it's going to happen. So, But if you, when you know yourself deep enough, without judgment, without judgment, then you're better prepared to deal with what it's like to be conscious, but not necessarily in a body. And then after that, it's up for grabs. We don't know. Or at least I should say most of us don't know. I believe uh, those with great meditative experience know. And there is uh, some serious, and I do mean serious and significant and replicatable data uh, produced at some of the medical schools now uh, of people who remember their past lives. Much of this was conducted by the psychiatrist Ian Stevenson at the University of Virginia Medical School. Uh, 
and also lots of other places on the earth where they went and they investigated it and they got objective evidence, body marks, memories, uh, other things that cannot at all be explained in any other way other than the memory of a prior life. So we are still in the outer fringes of understanding the deeper corridors of the mind. And some of our ancient and so-called primitive ancestors about this were very future-oriented, future-primitive, very much advanced in some of these things, and they studied it. It wasn't haphazard. In the mystery schools of ancient Egypt, in India, in Tibet, you studied this. That is what the monasteries did, and they did it for thousands of years. The pyramids were not the tombs of egotistical pharaohs. You know, people talk about that, but it's just not true. There have never been any bones found in the king's chambers in the Greek uh, pyramids of Giza. It's just not true. Those were places of initiation into the great solar mysteries where people learned how to have a conscious death and then be resurrected. And that, that whole tradition is a tradition that informed the great luminary Jesus the Christ, who was uh, extraordinary... Uh, spirit, and he brought that to uh, the Middle East. But he studied that when he was on his travels with Nicodemus uh, to uh, Egypt and uh, India. You know, he after, after that episode in the, in the, in the temple at 12 yeah. years old, he disappeared. Until he was 33. He was on the travel routes, the caravans, and then he shows up again in thir when he's 30. What do you think he was doing all that time? He was studying this in the deserts, in the Egyptian mystery schools. There are even uh, books uh, of him in India. So he was on the, he was on the travel of the trade routes. That's how he became such a, Isa. a great spirit. Yes. Yeah. And what, do you think Mary Magdalene was with him? I don't know. I didn't <laughs> think Mary, he met Mary Magdalene um, when he was back in Palestine. I recently completed and published a, uh, a cycle of, of poetry on, uh, an, uh, on an imaginary encounter between Jesus, letters be exchanged between Jesus Christ and Mary Magdalene. Oh, wow. Called the Magdalene Poems. And they're right there on the website that you mentioned, uh, my name, Edward Bruce Bynum. Yes. Amazon.com. You see it as the Magdalene Poems. But that's purely literary. Yes, that's yes. purely literary. Yes, I've written a lot of poems about Magdalene and oh, yes. they are purely literary as you would say. They're purely literary. I <laughs> let myself go. There's, so there's no uh, there's no pretense that this is clinical or scientific. Yes, uh, yes. But it's, yes. you know it's a different it's a different pathway. And we all have to have different uh, pathways into our deep psyche and the arts is one of them and it's just as valid as the scientific one, which is just as valid as the spiritual one. The spiritual one, actually, for me, is the, is the deepest. And that is deeper than science, for me. Yeah, I, I understand. Um, and this is why I would ask you, what do you mean by neurotheology? Neurotheology is a, is a clinical discipline. It's a, 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 an area studied in many of the medical schools, particularly the school, the school that study neurology. And what it is is the study of what, what happens in the brain during spiritual experiences of one kind or another. Example being, uh, they've uh, had you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of people who've uh, meditated for long, long, long periods of time. Well, what is happening to their brains in terms of their uh, EEG, electroencephalograms, and other things, uh, blood flows and so forth to the brain, when they are in these deep states of contemplation, prayer, reflection and meditation what happens how and so that is that field and it turns out that uh, people in states of deep meditation the brain changes certain areas of the brain receive more blood and stimulation and some areas receive less uh, in particular when we are in the state of uh, deep uh, meditation the areas that orient us the parts of the brain that orient us as to time, space, are what's called diaphragmated. In other words, less neural stimuli goes into those regions of the brain, 
and more blood goes elsewhere. And as a result, we're able to, under you know, strict discipline, a person can learn how to quiet their external world such that their inner world becomes much more luminous. And that is a those spiritual experience as people talk about. So that's neurotheology, that what happens to the brain yes, when we're yes. having this profound religious experience. And they've studied uh, nuns, they've studied uh, yogas, uh, yogis, and so forth. Yeah, so it, it's a new field, only about the last 20 years or so, but it's very profound. Does diaphragmatic have to do with the diaphragm? Uh, the diaphragm, diaphragmatic breathing, which I talk about extensively in the Dream Life of Families, but, yeah. uh, uh, but I should say uh, briefly in the Dream Life of Families, but much, much more detailed in the, the book Dark Light Consciousness right. to go into the neurophysiology yeah. of, of that. But the point is mm-hmm. that breathing diaphragmatically and a couple of other ways added on to that help quiet the mind and quiet the body. And as the body and the mind get quiet, the inner world begins to blossom a lot more so. It's much like when we go, it's, it's somewhat like when we go to sleep at night. Mm. You go to sleep at night, you pay less attention to the external world and much more attention to the internal world. Well, imagine if you can do this while you're conscious and wide awake and you turn off the external world, you turn off your visual filters, you turn off your ear, hearing auditory, you turn off the taste, you turn off other sensations. The inner sensations, which are usually blotted out, but you turn on the, your inner light and it becomes brighter and brighter and brighter. And you're able to see phenomena and events inside of your experience that are usually uh, superseded when we're wide awake. You know, it's like um, it's, it, 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 an example of that would be like during the day, a bright sunny day mm-hmm. you go outside and you look up, up in the sky and you see the sun and the sun is glorious and and so on and so forth but what do you not see well you don't see all the stars yeah that's right but in the middle of the night when the sun is not there and maybe the moon is is very low you see thousands upon thousands of stars well the stars are there during the day too but you can't see them because they're outshined by the sun. Well, by analogy, if you're able to quiet down the sun of your distractions, you can turn into, you can tune into all the starlight at night. And then if you're really good, you can pay particular attention to particular stars. And those stars are a reflection of you on the deepest level. You're quite a poet. I want to ask you, before we part today, I want to ask you, what's the difference? How is it different in terms of uh, uh, sort of turning the radio dial or clicking on the mouse? How is dreaming different from what happens when you take plant medicines or psychedelic uh, psychedelic medicine, how is it different, dreaming, meditating, changing your consciousness with a substance? Well, generally when we're dreaming uh, regularly at night, we're not consciously influencing our dreams. We're not saying, okay, I'm dreaming, unless we become consciously aware of it. Generally, we're just having a dream of one kind or another, or a nightmare food sometimes, or a vivid dream at other times. However, if we intentionally, consciously take a medication, the medication sometimes will suppress the dream, like alcohol will oftentimes suppress our our dream experience. Certain kinds of drugs and meditation will depress dreaming. Other kinds of medication will make the dreaming much more intense and much more vivid. Some some medications will even make it so intense that it's uh, that the, you feel like you're dreaming sometimes in the middle of the day. Um, so there are all of those kinds of things. And um, when you're taking a, a medication that is an hallucinogen, yes. either intentionally or not, it can make you sort of dream out loud in the day. That's called being psychotic. And that's not a good thing in experience at all, unless you're trained for it. I mean, it's a very uncomfortable, very frightening situation because you feel out of control, and in many ways you are out of control. You take me- 
psilocybin, LSD, some of these other hallucinogens for whatever reasons, they might be clinically appropriate or they might be experientially appropriate. You may be doing some sort of particular meditation under the guise of a direction of a teacher or whatever. That may make sense. You may be being initiated into a particular spiritual practice and then you do that because it makes sense. Okay, that makes sense. But if you do it recreationally and you get in over your head, it can be an unpleasant experience. It can be an unpleasant experience. So you have, I'm not condemning them by mm-hmm. any means. Mm-hmm. You know, there have been traditions for thousands of years that have used potent hallucinogens mm-hmm. as part of the initiation process. Certainly the ancient uh, Egyptians did. They, they used certain kinds of uh, blue lotus. Many in, in ancient India used it. Uh, hemp, it was very powerful. In South America, uh, many of the shamans in the western part of the United States, many of the Native American peoples have used different products, peyote and so on and so forth. So they have a profound spiritual basis. But when they do, you know you're doing it, and you're doing it with a teacher, a guide. Yes, yes. That makes all the difference in the world. In most such situations, it can be extremely helpful in terms of your psychic, psychological, and spiritual unfoldment. I'm wondering uh, if you would take a moment and um, tell us what you'd like to say in closing and uh, maybe partly why your book is useful, Dream Life of Families. Well, for me, and of course I'm obviously biased, but for me, I want people to know that they're deepest concerns in life, essentially their relationships with their family. After society crumbles, we still cling to our families, okay? Yep. So our families are are one of our ultimate concerns. When we're born, we're born into families. When we die, we want our families around us, okay? And when we're leaving this life, very often we're calling their names. They're our deepest memories. They're our deepest memories. And also, our dreams are the bedrock of our deepest memories, and our dreams carry our central stories, our central narratives, our central tales that tell us about what we are. They're our personal mythology, if you want to think of it that way. Mythology being not true or false, but a way to organize reality, organize reality. Well, those two streams, and they're deep, deep currents, deep streams in our soul, our psyche, they flow into each other inextricably innumerable times throughout our life, and they cross-fertilize with each other. And they're very important in terms of who we feel, experience, and think of who we are. Mm-hmm. They are our personal story. They are our, they are our mythology, our, our, our painting, our, our movie. And I want people to know that they're not only important, but they are the they are the texture and the fabric of our, our direct experience of reality, our direct experience of reality. Mm-hmm. You know, many of the greatest scientific discoveries of the last centuries came to people in dreams. You know that? I didn't realize that. Yes, they did. Einstein's theory of relativity, he extracted that from a daydream. <laughs> A daydream, but wait, wait, say what, say, say what, uh, what, what's the difference between a daydream and a night dream? What's a daydream? I mean, a daydream is when you're like, you might be sitting on the sofa or riding on the train and your mind just sort of drifts. You don't go unconscious, but rather you let streams of your own unconscious sort of spill up into your daytime state of mind. And you're having reverie, you're having fantasy, you're letting it drift around, you're not being an editor, you're just letting it naturally flow. And sometimes when it flows, it flows into areas that are quite creative, mm-hmm. quite creative. Mm-hmm. The man who discovered the benzene ring in chemistry and revolutionized modern chemistry, he was sitting on a train thinking about this chemical problem of, of, of the benzene ring, he couldn't figure it out, he just kept thinking about it. And he lulled himself into a daydream and then a light sleep. And he had a dream. He had a dream of a snake biting its own tail. Mm. And he woke up and, whoa, he had it. He had it. 
the person who discovered the periodic table, he literally dreamed and filled in many of the gaps in a dream. In the arts, uh, Mary Shelley, who wrote the, the great yes. novel Frankenstein, mm -hmm. she had a dream about it. Yeah. She woke up from a dream and she wrote it down. Yes, so there are innumerable examples of that. So it, is, it influences scientific breakthroughs. Everything. Everything. Yeah. That's why I said it, 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 it goes deep, deep, deep into our psyche. And, you know, you don't want to go through this life drugged up and unaware. You want to experience and understand yourself because it's, we're all on a great adventure. We're all on a great adventure. And at the beginning, it's a mystery. And at the end, it's a mystery. Yeah. And in the middle, it's full of all kinds <laughs> of mystery. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It's a great mystery. Thank you so much, Bruce, for being with us today. Well, I've had a very good time, and I hope <laughs> that uh, uh, the folks have learned something and they feel inspired and and, um, and and take a different attitude when they're going to sleep at night because within a few hours, you're going to be right in the middle of everything. Great.